You are now listening to the July 23rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the Twelve Apostles of Jesus. Andrew was not a public preacher like Peter, who converted 3,000 people to be born again, but his strength was in noticing individuals. One time, Jesus taught over 5,000 people. In the first century Israel, only adult men were counted. If women and children were also included, it would have been easily over 10,000 people. Jesus finished his teaching, and it was time for a meal. But there was no way to feed so many people. So Jesus asked Philip to test him. Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? And Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. Philip was quick with calculation, but did not pass Jesus' test. But then Andrew noticed a child whom no one cared to notice and who was not even included in the number of people that day. The child had five barley loaves and two fish, and Andrew brought the child to Jesus. Jesus gave thanks for the five loaves of bread and two fish and distributed it to people. That is when the miracle happened. Everyone was able to eat enough, and there were leftovers. This miracle happened because Andrew valued one person's worth preciously. One time, Greeks wanted to meet Jesus, so they went to see Philip, whose name is in Greek, and requested if they could meet Jesus. Would Jesus meet Gentiles? Philip discussed the matter with Andrew and he led the Greeks to Jesus, whom Jewish people despised and did not value much. Andrew valued children and Gentiles very much, whom other people did not care to notice, and served faithfully as a bridge to lead them to Jesus. One time, there were two pastors who were serving in Scotland. They worked hard for God, but there weren't many people who accepted Jesus. One day, they got together and talked to each other. That person was Robert Moffat, and the pastor spoke about how he came to accept Jesus. The other pastor said, We had a week-long revival at our church recently. I led the revival with a high hope, but only one person accepted and decided to follow Jesus. They shared their disappointing experiences during their time serving God, but after several years, something marvelous happened. The only one person... Robert Moffat, whom the first pastor led to Jesus, became a missionary in Africa who framed the ministry there. The only other person who accepted Jesus at the other pastor's revival was David Livingston, who spread the gospel of Jesus in the African continent. In the Bible, there is a story of a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. One day when the shepherd counted his sheep, only 99 of them returned to him one was missing. 
So the shepherds set out to the mountain and searched for the lost sheep. The shepherd finally found the lost sheep and returned together. This story describes our Lord Jesus. If churches seek only a large number of people and something materialistic, they will lose the sight of valuing one person's worth. So we must begin to realize the precious value of a single soul, like how Jesus treated a single soul preciously, and how Andrew treated a single person preciously. Andrew earned two honorable titles by valuing each and every person and leading them to Jesus. One is the first missionary in Israel by leading his brother Peter to Jesus, and the other is the first missionary for Gentiles by leading Greeks to Jesus. According to Christianity tradition, Andrew went to Greece in the later days and spread the gospel there. The wife of the Greek governor and her brother accepted Jesus. It caused the governor to become angry, and he had Andrew executed on the X-shaped cross. According to church tradition, Andrew's last prayer on the cross was, O Christ Jesus, please receive me. I became who I am in you, whom I have seen and whom I love. Lord, please receive my soul in the peace your everlasting kingdom gives. Andrew was crucified on the X-shaped cross. Actually, X is the first letter of Jesus' name in Greek. Andrew became Jesus' disciple by confessing Jesus is the Christ and was martyred on the X-shaped cross, which also signified Christ, ending his faithful life in Christ. Apostle Andrew was a faithful disciple of Jesus who loved to listen to Jesus' teaching by staying near him. Follow Jesus by confessing that Jesus was his Christ and valued each person's worth preciously. I hope we all will be like Andrew who loved to listen to the word of Jesus by staying near him. Follow Jesus by confessing that Jesus was his Christ and valued each person's value preciously. This concludes today's episode of the 12 Apostles of Jesus. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you again next week.
sins are washed away Redeemed through sacrifice In Him God hath revealed to us The mystery of His will That Christ should be the head of all His purpose to fulfill Next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, The Problem is Inside. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Uh, morning, can we turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 7? We're going to be reading from 13 to 25. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure for we know that the law spiritual is spiritual but i am of the flesh sold under sin for i do not understand my own actions for i do not do what i want but i do the very thing i hate now if i do what i do not want i agree with the law that it is good So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I 
want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive of the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This morning, uh, we are in the book of Romans in chapter 7, and I hope that you brought your favorite theological flotation device because we are jumping back into the deep end of the scriptures. These are some of the hardest scriptures in all of the Bible that we're looking at this morning. You'll notice that Paul's use of I here, as we said last week, is actually, I take it as autobiographical. In other words, he's speaking of his own experience, but it's also paradigmatic. That means that he is inviting those who would have been listening to him to enter into his experience and say, yeah, that's my experience too. And so that's the way that we're reading this, that we too should be reading ourselves into these verses. Now, you may remember from last week that Paul began unfolding this epic drama that's unfolding. There are three main characters, the I, the law, and sin. And he's looking at this past experience in verses 7 to 12 that looks like a Polaroid snapshot of an event in history. And he's saying, how did, when I came to desire, uh, when I hit my bar mitzvah age of 13 and started understanding the nature of the law, how is it that in that moment that the law all of a sudden became very clear to me, but also by sinful desires? How did those things come together and how do they relate? How does the law, sin, and me, how do those things interact and engage? How do I, I think of those things? Well, here, I believe Tim, uh, Will Timmons has a correct reading of verses 13 to 25 when he says this. In these verses, Paul is bringing our mortal body out of the shadows in this conversation. You'll notice that he is focusing on our human bodies and, and the nature of their relationship to sin and the law. And he wants us to focus on the ongoing implications of the fact that we are living in these bodies that are dying and passing away and wasting away and still under the shadow of Adam experiencing sinful desires as we await Christ to come and give us new bodies. I believe that's what he is focusing in on here in these verses this morning. Paul has thundered the grace of God on display at the cross of Christ where he put sin and death to death. I mean, he's been talking about that. It's exciting. It's thrilling to think about the freedom that comes to the Christian in Christ. And yet our bodies still die. Christians still sin. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Our big idea is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's that indwelling sin reminds us of our desperate need for Jesus every day and the new body that awaits us on the last day. Indwelling sin, it's reminding us constantly of our desperate need for Jesus every day, moment by moment. And also, for the great day that's coming where He is going to give us a new eternal body. First, notice in verse 13, Paul does what he's been doing throughout. He's asking a question. We'll see in this verse that sin weaponized God's good law. I think that's what Paul is telling us. Sin weaponized God's good law. Now, verse 13, it's kind of like a bridge between verse 12 and verse 14. 
Now, he just said that the law is not sin. That's his relationship to sin, not sin. And now he shows how the law, which is good, holy, and righteous, played a role in the death of the I, of Paul. Now, Paul asks this, verse 13. Did that which is good then, being the law, bring death to me? What is the relationship between the good law and the death of the eye? Uh, to verses 10 and 11 above, where he talked about the, the law bringing death to him, do they mean that that law which promised life actually brought about the death of I? Paul again offers his brief, clear, short answer that he offers throughout. By no means, which translates, no way, Jose. Of course not. God forbid. That is crazy talk. That's not the answer, right? And then what he does is, is he proceeds to kind of unfold what he means by that. Notice what he explains as he goes on in verse 13. He says, it was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might be sinful beyond measure. Now it may have appeared that the law aided and abetted sin up to this point in Romans. But here, Paul is envisioning the law as the instrument of sin that sin used to bring about death. It's an instrument. As we showed last week, Paul assumes that the truth of the law is an instrument of good. That is, as we said last week, axiomatic. It is assumed to be true. They don't need to argue or explain it. The law is good. Of course it's, it's good. In fact, one author wrote of the nature of the law describing it. And he said there are three good uses of the law in his threefold use of the law. And he said it's an instrument of good in the Christian life. And I think these are generally good ways for the Christian to view the law if they're viewing it through the lens of who Jesus is now that he's arrived and how he's taught it and how the apostles have taught it. Some Christians may quibble over the Sabbath, as we talked about, but, but we would say that it's a good thing to obey God's Word. And as they did that, he, this author explained the law and its goodness in three different ways, and I want to give you three pictures just to help you remember that. Anybody like pictures to remember stuff? Nobody. Okay, it's just me, but this will help me this morning to remember. So the first is a mirror, the second is a leash, and the last is a light. So it's a mirror. The law is good for us in this sense. Uh, it is a mirror in the sense that as we look into the law, we see the perfections of God. But as we're looking and staring at the perfections of God, we actually see a reflection of ourself coming back and we notice our own imperfections, our sins, our frailty, and our desperate need for the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. In other words, when we see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God who created us in His image, we know that that is what we have been made for. And we will not rest until we've been made into the image of the very God in the face of Jesus Christ. Second, it's like a, a leash as well. So, as a leash, we know that the law is powerless to change our hearts. In fact, I think that's one of the main points of our verses this morning. But the terrible consequences and punishments that we find throughout the law will at least cause 
some curb or pause in sin to some degree. Uh, In fact, John Calvin explaining this says that for those who unless forced and will not have rectitude for justice, God has given his law to constrain them. In other words, there are some, unless there are those visible strengths and and terrible consequences, it will at least cause them to pause and think about sin. It's a bad day whenever we no longer pause, whenever society does not pause before they sin against a holy and righteous God. The third use of the law is that of a light. And I would call it a light of delight. And here's what I mean. The the law reveals what pleases God to his born-again children. So as we look at it, we see what it is that we are called to live for, how we are to live to glorify God. And God intends the law to be an instrument of good, which Paul uses here to highlight just how sinful sin is. See, the law might have been the instrumental cause of death, but he says sin is the ultimate cause of death. You've probably heard the saying, and I don't want to get too political here, but You've heard it said that guns don't kill people, people kill people. Well, I think this text says the law doesn't kill people, people kill people. Right? Indwelling sin kills people. Paul was killed with the law, not by the law. Sin weaponized the law as an instrument of good to bring about death. Now, why did God allow this, you might ask? Well, Paul's actually using the law here to show just how sinister sin really is. And Paul says the purpose of the law here is to do two things. Did you catch those things in verse 13? A, to reveal just how wicked and sinister sin is. We would not have known explicitly how bad it is unless God had shown us. But second, to demonstrate the power of sin, to use the good law to bring about its nefarious ends. It is showing us just how malicious sin is. Now come in close. Paul shows that not only is the law powerless to cause sin, the law is powerless to stop sin in verses 14 to 20. It's not just powerless to cause sin, it's powerless to stop sin. Notice here in verses 14 to 20, how he unfolds this reality that the Christian experiences the presence and power of indwelling sin. Now, you'll notice first in verses 14 to 20 how Paul is is shifting to the present tense, which he's going to use throughout the rest of this chapter. He he was in a a past snapshot type tense in the verses before it. Now he's saying this is a present reality. Reality. And verses 14 to 17 show the powerlessness of the law before indwelling sin. And then in verses 18 to 20, it'll show the powerlessness of the I himself to overcome sin in himself. Uh, First, did you see the powerlessness of the law before indwelling sin in verses 14 to 17? Uh, Look there, we'll read those verses again. Here's what he says. Paul writes this in Romans 7, verses 14 to 17. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. 
So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, Paul is quick to highlight that the law is spiritual. And I take that to mean that the law is of the Holy Spirit. It is from God, as contrasted to the I who says he is actually of the flesh and sold under sin. I take that to be two different sort of heaven versus earth kind of realities. Now, flesh is an interesting word. You know that words are used differently. The same words are sometimes used differently in the Bible. Sometimes you even find within the same verse, the same word will be used in different ways. Well, flesh is one of those words that has different meanings. And sometimes it means the present evil world. Or for human existence that is apart from God. And both are highlighting rebellion towards God, a world or a person who is opposed to God. That's one way that it's used. Now, this is one reason that some, as they look to these verses, understand Paul describe a pre-Christian experience. But flesh can also mean fleshly. Or simply the, the experience of Christians living in, in the body, this body of flesh. I, I take it that way. Uh, Will Timmons, in his monograph says this, he says, speaking of the nature of the flesh, it describes here the anthropological condition of human beings living in the shadow of Adam as they await the resurrection of their bodies. And you're like, that is a big word. Why do you keep using big words? Anthropological. It's just a word that's talking about the human condition, our humanity, our our bodily existence. It's not talking about our relationship with Christ, whether or not we are a Christian or a non-Christian, it is saying that all of us have bodies and are living in that experience. We can all understand that, whether Christian or non-Christian. And here he is speaking of a Christian experience living this fleshly existence. In other words, flesh here, it doesn't mean opposition to God. Now you'll remember that the book opens describing Jesus who became the seed of David according to the flesh. So it can't mean necessarily opposition to God because Jesus entered into the flesh, right? So I take it here that Paul is speaking of something very specific and nuanced. He's talking about the already not yet experience of Christians who still have their old bodies indwelt by sin and that kind of existential crisis that is experienced by every believer who longs to be what they are and yet are not yet what they shall be. This is the place I think that Paul is speaking to in these verses. Now, catch how this fleshes out in verse 15. See what I did there? All right, moving on. He says, he doesn't understand or literally know why he does what he does. He's literally conflicted. There are two powers at work within him. He doesn't do what he wants, which here is obey the law. Instead, he does the very thing he hates, which is sin. And then in verses 16 to 17, Paul says that even when he sins, he shows that the law is good. In other words, you might think that when you sin, it must be because the law is broken, like it's his fault, not mine. But he says, no, like even when I sin, it it actually magnifies the goodness of the law. He says, but another force wars inside him And it's against that desire to obey God. And that that force is this, sin that dwells within me. Not just close to me. 
Not just in eyesight of me, but within me. And that internal fight with sin reveals the depth of our sin problem while living in these bodies of sin. So what Paul is saying, there are two things that are clear. First, and I get this from Tom Schreiner, that one cannot fully comprehend the depth of sin in oneself. The evil in our hearts is not just a mystery to others, it is a mystery to us. I don't even understand myself and the way that I operate most of the time, okay, some of the time, with the kind of clarity of precision that God does. I, I do not see myself, I don't understand. I'm, I'm needy as I, I find that struggle going within me. I am desperate. I do not have resources in this body of flesh to save me from the sins that I need to be saved from and rescued from. And second, the powerlessness of the law in comparison to the power of sin is shown here. The law, do you see it? The law is powerless to prevent me from sinning if it's just me and the law. If it's just left to me and the law. I, I can't keep it left to myself. Third, Christians fight and lament as they await Jesus' return in verses 21 to 25. Christians fight and lament as they await Jesus' return in verses 21 to 25. I want to make a couple of observations that I I hope will help you on the front end of reading these verses. Uh, First observation is this. Paul's drawing a conclusion from this struggle between his good desires and bad actions that he just talked about in the previous verses. And here you'll notice that he's, he's focusing on the law. In fact, he uses that word law seven times. Now, law is used in different ways in the Bible as well. We've even seen that in the book of Romans. And here, though he's been talking about Mosaic law, it's clear that he's using it, at least in some context, as something other than Mosaic law. We'll look at that in a second. But the second thing that I want to point out here is that Paul here is highlighting the battle. And he is saying it is between the law of God and the law of sin. Those two things are at work in in, in, uh, Christians. So let's take a look at these verses, beginning in verse 21. Look what he says. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. See, Paul concludes that there is a a law, a word here that can also mean principle. I think that's what he's speaking of. And he even tells us what that principle is. Do you see it? I desire to do right, but evil lies close at hand. That's a principle that I just see as being true all around me. And it's right there with him. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians and he says this in 2 Corinthians 14, 16. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self or being is being renewed day by day. Now there Paul speaks of the hope of the future awaiting those Jesus will raise up and bring into his presence on the last day. And he goes on to say in verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now the context there in 2 Corinthians is bodily suffering for Jesus' sake. The context in Romans 7 is bodily suffering in the war with indwelling sin. Now again, some argue this is a pre-Christian experience, noting that first century Jews, 
they would have said, they would have declared confidently that they delighted in the law of God in her being. And that's true. But the question I have here is whether a good Jew would also have said that he sees in the members of his body another law or principle warring against his mind. Would he have seen that? And as the body wastes away, Paul sees it as the locus of all kinds of sinful desires. He seems to go to great length to distinguish his body and members and members from his mind or soul here. I don't think that he's trying to give us like dualism, like the body's good and the mind's bad or something like, or the mind's good and the body's bad or anything like that. I think he's trying to give us a a picture of this inner turmoil that is going with relationship to this physical body. Now you might ask, in what way can a Christian be captive to the law of sin if he's living under grace? And I think that's a great question. I've again been persuaded by Will Timmons that Paul is speaking here of an anthropological reality relating to his body and his person, not as an ontological reality that addresses whether or not he loves Jesus and is a Christian. He's talking about the nature of what it means to be a Christian in this human body, this side of Jesus coming back. In other words, he's describing the nature of the human body of Christians as they await their new bodies on that last day. He's not describing whether or not they are justified by faith. We we are free from sin and death, but anthropologically, we still war against sin and a body that is wasting away. In fact, in Romans 6.12, Paul told Christians not to let sin reign in their mortal bodies, even though he had just said that they'd been freed from sin and death by means of faith in Jesus Christ. I, I think he's pulling out that tension. What do we do before Jesus comes back and finally frees us from these bodies of death and sin. Well, sin is an operative law in an Adamic bodily state as he awaits the body of Christ on that last day. That's why I believe verse 24 erupts in this lament to God. He is lamenting the reality that he is living in as he longs for the restoration of all things. As he longs for that new body that is to come. He says, wretched man that I am, Who will, catch this, who will in the future deliver me from this body of death? Do you see that? It's this, he's really putting into full effect this desire for the body to be raised up. He's looking for the bodily resurrection, that future deliverance that's coming when? With the second coming of Christ. So let me just close with some applications as as we wrap this up. Uh, I've got a number of applications. Uh, So I'm going to get through as many as I can. But the first is this. Can we just please not divide over this text? It's just one. I just want to lay that out there. Maybe I should have begun with that. But we live in such a divisive age. In fact, um, I was watching yesterday and there was a a football player, a young football player who died, very accomplished. And then all of a sudden, some people started tweeting like, really like stuff they didn't need to about him, like pointing out failures instead of all of the accomplishments. And then people started fighting about the way they were talking about death. I was like, you know, we we can't even die in peace anymore. Like, we just fight about everything. Let it not be so in the house of God. Let's all work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and that includes in our exegesis. Second, I take it that Paul's main highlight here is to be both that the law and the eye are powerless to keep us from sin. I think you know this. 
I hope that if you're here, if you've spent any time here, you know that our preaching is not intended to simply jump from, this is what the law says, you're a failure, amen, let's go home and get lunch. Like, that's not the kind of preaching I don't think that breathes life. I don't think that's the way that Paul speaks of the nature of the gospel. No, we, we need to hear the good news of Jesus. We need to understand that I, in myself, even as a Christian, left to myself, the law by itself, they cannot save me from the power of sin. There's a scene from the, the Bob Newhart show. Anybody know what that is? Anybody? Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, old show, but in the show, he's playing a, a kind of therapist, and a woman comes in to get help. She's got all of these like problems, things that she can't get over. And uh, you might have seen this famous clip, but she says, okay, um, I'm here for help. And he's like, yeah, I, I can help you. It only takes five minutes. It's $5. And uh, so let's go ahead and get started. So she shares a little bit and he says, okay, are you ready? She says, yeah. He said, okay, I've got two words that are going to change everything. And uh, she's like, what? okay, do I need to write this down? He goes, no, it's, it's two words. I think you're fine. Most people can remember it. So, okay, what is it? Stop it. And that didn't go so well. So she said, well, let's go to the other problem. And he get another problem. And he said, okay, here it is. You ready? Completely different problem. Same medicine. Stop it. And at the end, she's just like completely frazzled. She's like, what are you talking? How is this helpful? Right? Well, that's the same nature, I think, with the way that some of us look at the law. We think that the law is meant to just say like, here's what it says to do. You're not doing it. You're a failure. Get better. Now, the nature of the gospel is actually meant first to come in to show us just how unable we are to obey God left to ourselves. We are a deeply needy humanity. We are frail. We are fragile. We are sinners. Uh, you know, I, I don't think sometimes we understand just how sinful we are. Uh, the other day, um, I, I think I've shared a story with you before where I was telling you about how someone that was really close to me um, slandered me I felt like he just like a couple of times really was telling me one thing was telling people other things and then put me in this like really bad position where I began to to just be angry and so I, I in this moment you know I, I really felt like I was the victim but but the thing I was struggling with it was this calling causing me to have anger with others really perceive myself as a victim but I was becoming angry and, and, and not angry in good ways and trying to figure out how to deal with that anger uh, there were other times that as, as I was continuing to process and work through this, I found that I was uh, struggling to trust other people as though they had like, done the same thing. And I realized like, in that moment, like, even when I saw myself as a victim, I, I became a kind of perpetrator in the way that I was beginning to sin because I felt like I had been sinned against. And isn't that just the wiliness of the nature of the way that sin works in this world? We have to always be vigilant. Vigilant that we ourselves can become teamed up with sin against our good God. But there's another thing that I want you to remember this morning. And that's third. Even though I'm powerless before sin, even though the law is powerless before sin, you know who's not powerless before sin? Jesus. You don't just need Jesus to get you to heaven. You need Jesus to get you to tomorrow. The point that Paul wants us to see is our utter helplessness and dependence on Jesus. Indwelling sin is why we are not passively holy. If you're not fighting spiritually, you're, you're dying. 
People who take indwelling sin and heaven seriously, they fight sin by digging deep into God's Word. Memorizing Scripture so that when they are being told lies, they can actually see the lie for what it is and combat it with the truth of God's Word. Just like Jesus does in Matthew 4 when He's coming before the Prince of Lies Himself. We pray. God, I don't understand my own heart. Will you you save me from this heart? Will you make me holy like you are holy? Will you help me to to forgive? Will you help me not to be angry in wrong ways? Will you help me to control my appetites? I can't do it. I am desperately needy for you. I know a day's coming when all this is going to be over. But right now, will you visit and help me? I need you if I'm going to make it to the end. And knowing sin by Mark Jones, he, he writes, this is the summary of the Christian life. Not passive reluctance to our sin, but a holy war that is waged by the one who knows that victory is assured because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's 1 John 4.4. 4. Not only that, fourth. Know that the more you mature in Christ, the more you are aware of indwelling sin. There is a a real logic to the reason that as you walk with me, He is exalted King is exalted on high, and I will praise Him. He is exalted, forever exalted, and I will praise His name.
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. That's if you were to take the Greek word deacon and know its exact meaning. If you said the word deacon to a Greek speaker of this day, they would hear the word servant. That's what they would hear. They are recognized servants of the church. And unfortunately, Baptist churches, I don't know when this happened, have confused the issue by calling their leadership deacons. So they call their leadership the elders. Actually, they call them deacons, and therefore they say women can't be deacons because they're in a leading position. But deacons are not leaders, they are servants. They don't exercise authority, they serve the body of Christ. Deacons do not lead, they serve. They are recognized servants who have been faithful and have been tested and proven that in the body of Christ, and they are recognized to be so. And if they serve well, they have turned a high standing in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's a wonderful thing. And I shared this when we went through Philippians. We don't have any recognized deacons yet, but in my heart, there are people who are functioning as deacons. They are acting as deacons, and one of these days, we're going to say, you're a deacon. Well, we already know that. They've been functioning that way. They're serving faithfully. So many people serving. First Timothy 3 reveals the qualifications for deacons, men or women alike, unlike elders. Romans 16, Paul says, Phoebe is a deacon of the church. Lady, she was faithful. She helped Paul. She was a helper of Paul. She didn't lead Paul. She didn't exercise authority. She helped him. So there's an overview of elders and deacons. With that in mind, let's get back to Titus, and we'll start now back in our text and just finish up verse 5 here. So everyone understands in a general way what an elder is and what they should do, right? Does that make sense? Hopefully you can't walk away and someone says, well, what's an elder? You, I don't know. You know what that is, right? You know where to look in Scripture, right? Okay, now we get back to our passage. We're going to see that through Paul, God gives a directive to the church for them to appoint godly elders. 
Again, verse 5, Titus chapter 1. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. There's what elders should look like. We're going to look at that, but again, don't go on autopot. In the next few weeks, we're going to look at the qualifications, as I just read here, and those are just Christ-likeness. Everyone should ascribe to those characteristics. Everyone should desire to be like this. In Christ, it can be done in general. We fail, we make mistakes, but in Christ, he wouldn't say, pick people like this if there couldn't be people like this, right? Okay, so... First of all, we see Titus is left in Crete to address what was lacking. For this reason I left you in Crete, Paul says, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Obviously, the Apostle Paul had been with Titus and had left him in the island of Crete. And you say, well, where is the island of Crete? In the back of your Bibles, there may be a map or there may not. But Crete was one of the fourth largest islands in the Mediterranean Sea. It was basically equal distant from Asia, Africa, and Europe. The island was about 160 miles long from east to west, and then it ranged from 6 to 35 miles from north to south. The highly advanced Minoan civilization flourished there from 2700 B.C. around to the time of the Exodus at 1450 B.C. Later on, Crete became influenced by Greek culture, and by the New Testament times, Crete had become, as we had seen last week, it had gained a reputation for moral decay. They were known as lazy gluttons, and the lying nature of Cretans had become proverbial about the Greek empire. Paul says, for this reason I left you in Crete. Now this word left here actually means in Greek, left temporarily. He didn't leave him for the long haul, he left him temporarily. I left you temporarily in Crete to do something. What is he to do? That you might, that, the word in Greek is hina, in order that, for the purpose of, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I direct you. Titus, I left you on that island for a short time, and here's why I left you there. The word in order that means ultimately the purpose. Well, why did he leave him there? To set in order what remains. This term set in order is an interesting word. It's a Greek word that is combined with three different Greek words. Epidiathorao. Epi meaning upon, dia meaning through, or in this case intensifying the next word, and ortho meaning making straight. We get our word orthodontics, making crooked teeth straight, or an orthopedic surgeon who straightens a broken limb or something like that. Epi di ortho. I left you in Titus to straighten things out. Things are crooked there. Things are crooked in Crete, Titus. I left you there to straighten out what remains, or the word literally means what was lacking. The churches in Crete were lacking something. They were lacking godly leadership. Titus, stay there, straighten it out. How so? Appoint elders in every city. Does that make sense? Straighten it out. He says, as I directed you. And it's important to realize 
This was a direction from the Apostle Paul. He says, as I directed you, diatasso, the word means to instruct or command or give orders. I gave you orders through apostolic authority. The, the Apostle Paul, speaking for the Lord, orders here in Scripture, appoint elders. This is God's orders to Titus for the churches. And it's very important we realize that Paul made clear that they understood this because he tells Titus later on, look in chapter 2, verse 15. These things speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let no one disregard you, Titus, in appointing elders. Let no one disregard you, Titus, concerning the shutting the mouths of those false teachers. Let no one disregard you concerning how older men and older women and young men should function in the body of Christ. Let no one disregard you in this. Speak it with all authority. Thus we have the authoritative word for churches to have elder leadership. Point elders. In every city, and most likely in Crete at that time, there was a church in every city. They were small cities. They would have one church there. Point elders, as I directed you. He gave orders, and he needs to do it. Folks, we have a wholehearted disregard for Scripture in churches these days. Churches that don't have elders are in disobedience to these principles. They're in disobedience. A church that says, well, we don't have elders here. They're in disobedience. And later on, we're going to see churches that do have elders that are ungodly are in disobedience. It's very important for churches to have godly elders because the flock is very valuable. Well, how is it that elders are appointed? How does it happen? How does this whole thing flush out in real time? Acts 20, I'm going to read this again. Acts 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit made them elders. Or literally, Tithemi placed them as elders. So underlying everything the Apostle Paul says here, the Holy Spirit was the one who brought about the choosing and placing of elders in the Ephesian church, Acts 20, but also in all the churches, ultimately, that follow his word. Okay, so it's through the Holy Spirit. But how does that work? I think we're going to see two things as we come to a close today. That one, God puts a desire in godly men to become overseers. God puts a desire in their heart to become overseers. You say, well, where do you get that, Greg? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. You can count it true. If a man aspires... To the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. God puts an aspiration in the heart of men who are yielded. Paul's talking to Timothy. Timothy's in Ephesus, ultimately. The Ephesians understood that we are to be filled by the Spirit, not walking in the flesh, ultimately. And he says, if someone aspires to this, it's a fine thing. And whenever I talk to people that I think maybe the Lord might be raising up as elders, I always say, do you have an aspiration to do that? That's the first thing. The Lord God has to put on their heart a desire to do this. It's not easy. I'll tell you right now. It's not easy to shepherd the flock. It's not easy. It's very difficult. It's agonizing at times. But there's no other place I would want to be. That's what God's called me to do, and I have that desire to do it. God gives the desire. So the Holy Spirit places, but God gives a desire to the people he places. But how does it happen? How are people actually appointed I believe God appoints elders 
by means of spirit-filled men who follow the exact requirements in his spirit-inspired word. God gives the exact requirements for leadership, and godly men who follow those requirements bring about the appointment of men who God has chosen for those positions. Does that make sense? Godly men following God's spirit-inspired requirements appoint men filled with the spirit. Acts chapter 6, those first deacons were men. They were deacons serving, but they were filled with the spirit. They were full of the spirit. They were directed by the spirit of God. And God directs the choosing of elders in his church via the qualifications in his word. And when godly men follow God's word based on his spirit, when men that God raises up with a desire are those he manifests, those who are appointed are ultimately those the Spirit of God appoints. The Holy Spirit placed you as overseers, he says in Acts 20. We must remember, and we're going to see this in two weeks, that God lays forth the exact qualifications. There's no ambiguity in this. We see ultimately in Scripture what God requires of elders. Read through it this next week, Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3. It's clear. And folks, there are a ton of churches that are totally in disregard to this. God appoints elders ultimately through those who are obedient to the word of God, who appoint those who have a desire, who meet the qualifications. The spirit of God is laid forth in his word. So God lays an aspiration on godly men to do that, and he uses godly men to appoint overseers. Titus was a godly man. In accordance with the word which should not be looked against or disregarded. Chapter 2, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The qualifications for elder, these things, no one disregard you, Titus. This is how you set in order what remains. It's spelled out in the word of God. You say again, great, but what does it have to do with me? I'm a woman and I'm not going to be an elder here. What does it have to do with me? I think everything it has to do with you because elders watch out for your souls. You want to place yourself voluntarily in submission under men who meet the requirements in Scripture that you can understand and know from the Word of God. And we'll see those and look at those. Everything depends on it because the leadership you submit to will eternally affect your walk with Christ. I tell you right now, it will affect your walk with Christ. You place yourself under ungodly leadership and you will eventually be hurt by it. Elders, watch out for your souls. They feed you the word of God. They protect you from threats. There are spiritual dangers out there. And God loves you so much that he wants to protect you. But he doesn't force you. He gives you the choice. It's very important we understand how God brings about leadership. And I think we're going to see next week it's very important we see the qualifications because we all should strive by the Spirit of God to have the characteristics that God reveals for Elders. So in a nutshell, elders and overseers and shepherds are a plurality of men who meet God's requirements as laid forth in his word, men in whom the Holy Spirit has created a desire in their hearts and has appointed through the agency of man to look out for, protect, lead, and feed the flock of God, the unadulterated word of God. They are to yield completely to Christ, leading by example, trusting Christ, Elders are God's stewards of the church. They are those focused on Christ and his word. They feed and protect the flock. They meet the characteristics of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. 
They are mature men who will speak the truth in love, warn you of threats and false teaching, confront you in your sin for the purpose of restoration, answer your questions, and point you to the sufficiency of Christ alone. Are you in a godly church? Are you placing yourself under godly elders? If you're not, you are in spiritual danger. God has laid forth the requirements. Let no one disregard this. Speak it with all authority. Right? That's the requirements. If you're in an ungodly church, you need to confront that. Now, elders, you know, we don't accuse them except for the basis of two or three witnesses, 1 Timothy chapter 5. But those who continue in sin reprove in the presence of all. There's a lot of churches that should have a lot of elders being reproved in the presence of all these days. Your spiritual well-being is at risk. You need to know what godly leadership looks like for your own spiritual protection. I'm going to close with Hebrews chapter 13. Let's turn there. I'm going to read two verses there. Hebrews 13:7. He's most likely speaking of those leaders that had now passed away. Remember those who led you? How they lead you, who spoke the word of God to you, Hebrews 13, 7. And considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Trust Jesus like they did. Why? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's the same for them as he is for you. Trust Jesus like they did. Imitate their faith. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? This is this is the context I give a caveat, godly leaders, not ungodly leaders. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Do you understand what a godly elder and leadership looks like? Godly leadership is here on God's command to watch out for your souls. Are you willing to place yourself under that? Do you know what it looks like? It's for your benefit. Are you willing to trust the Lord and obey him in these areas? And for those of us who are leaders, are we willing to trust the Lord and obey him in every manifestation and command in his word that he has given us for his flock? The flock's very, very important. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. You're very valuable. Therefore, God has very straight, strict, and exacting commands concerning those who would lead you. Be willing to submit to that and place yourself under that.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.